Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, November 13th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer as always, anything that you see or hear on this video or here on the podcast is not to be taken as investment advice. I am not a financial advisor. I do not know your personal circumstances, therefore I cannot uh, give you particular individual advice. Please do your own due diligence on any of the ideas that you may hear on here. It's your money and it's your responsibility. Plus, I'm just a guy on the internet. You don't really know me or, or know what, what I really know or don't know. So I was gonna do a, a little bit of q and I do get Q&As or questions in from various subscribers to the channel or also people on my Discord channel. The Discord channel, of course, is a benefit of a subscription to the Actionable Intelligence Alert. Um, I think it's pretty valuable. We have a pretty good group of folks in there, uh, subscribers, uh, people that have different um, backgrounds and they're able to share real-time advice. We have some, a farmer in there. He's talking to us about, you know, some of his input costs and things like that, just as an example. So there's all kinds of uh, good information there, but some of the questions come in from the YouTube channel. And so occasionally I'll uh, address these, but uh, here are some questions from this week. Any thoughts on the current natural gas space? Burgeoning food prices, fertilizer costs, et cetera, in addition to winter weather. Yes, I, I, the whole energy complex, in my view, um, is going higher uh, just because of the things we've talked about before. Specific to natural gas, you know, the thing that's interesting is I think that some folks forget about is that natural gas is hard to store. It's not as easy to store as oil. Oil's liquid. Can um, be stored in huge tanks. Gas uh, is more difficult. It is stored. It can be stored, but it's more difficult to store and transport. So that uh, comes into play. And the natural gas space is also affected by the lack of investment we've seen. You know, there was overinvestment, the drill baby drill, fracking revolution did affect the natural gas space. So there was an oversupply of gas. That's being rectified now also the same, the investment going into new gas has not been sufficient. And so if you look at the current natural gas supplies or gas supplies and storage for the US at least, we are near the uh, five-year low. They have various websites. I'll throw a link up to one I, I like to use. It's called American Oil Man. They have the natural gas storage and it shows for like this year and back like five years. So you can compare and you can see that we're um, well below the five-year average. What does this mean? Well, because we're forecasting a well, I'm not forecasting, but the people I listen to that are forecasting another La Nina and uh, a various uh, Atlantic oscillation, Pacific oscillation setting up to cause incursions of the jet stream down into North America and Europe. I'm uh, forecasting a, or my view is that we're gonna have a colder than normal winter. And when you juxtapose more heating degree days or more demand for heating against a, you know, below average storage, uh, this, this could lead to, uh, a price spike. Uh, it's very, you know, we've seen this in the past, not recently, but in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, 
there's been price spikes in natural gas where we've seen gas go to 10, $12 an MCF. Now in Europe, some places in Europe, you know, places in Asia, you're already seeing gas prices well above that simply because of the fact that the gas that they're bringing in is LNG and uh, it's not pipe pipeline gas. You know, the situation in Europe is interesting because Europe has been short-sighted in its energy policies. Uh, it's focused on renewable energy uh, to the, uh, and not thinking about gas and, and, and fossil fuels. And so they've really tied themselves to Russia and Gazprom. And now uh, whether you want to think that Gazprom and, and Russia is bending them over, uh, not supplying enough gas uh, to increase the storage in Europe, you know, that's that's discussion for another day. The, the the fact of the matter remains that there's not there's insufficient gas right now. So um, you're setting yourself up if you have a uh, bunch of demand come in because of uh, increased uh, or because of increased heating demand days, you know, another price spike. So um, I think that uh, we have a chance for that working out fairly well for us um you know sandridge energy is a is a gas uh natural gas and liquids producer in the central part of the country they're pretty much all they don't have any hedges on uh, they just came out with earnings last week they're just chock full of cash over there so, you know, there's there's opportunities out there. Uh, it's specific in the portfolio, not really. Uh, we're mostly focused on, on oil and the service stocks, but yes. So burgeoning food crisis, yes. We have a food crisis because of lockdown policies, because of labor shortages caused by lockdowns. Um, fertilizer costs are through the roof. Why? Well, um, you know, your three types of inputs are nitrogen, phosphate, and potash. And uh, nat natural gas is a key component in the production of nitrogen-based fertilizers. And uh, those are, everything's going through the roof now. Uh, another sector of the economy, uh, fertilizer that has been ignored, that's been, uh, had low prices for a long time. And so now you have a situation where you have uh, increased fertilizer costs. You have countries like Russia and China putting um, export moratoriums on, and that doesn't help the situation. So uh, yes, you know the people don't understand uh, the we have the inputs of these fertilizers in the large scale industrial scale agriculture that it allows has allowed the population of the Earth to get to where it is eight or nine billion people, whatever it is, and. You know, another thing that that fertilizer does is allows more marginal farmland to be brought into production to productive production. And if you raise prices for fertilizer inputs and you don't see a consummate in increase in grain prices, which I, I don't think will happen, I think grain prices are going to go higher. I think that's going to be the next uh, area in the commodity complex that we see big price movements. But regardless, you know, there's a lot of second and third order thinking that needs to go on here. You know, it's not just, you know, you go down to your local farmer's market or Whole Foods and you got a guy there with a little apron on, you know, smiling at you saying, here's all the produce. You have to understand what it takes to do that. You know, a lot of your 
um, salads and stuff like that. That stuff's produced in California and Florida. You know, I grew up in Southern Florida around Lake Okeechobee. That is the winter vegetable capital of the world. Uh, you get two crops a year down there. And uh, the soil is so productive because of the hurricane that happened in the 20s. It basically lifted the bottom of the lake up and distributed it um, all around the communities around there. I mean, it was a big loss of life and they ended up having a public works um, job to build a big dike around the lake so it wouldn't happen again. But, but it basically created this several feet thick of muck that you can just, you know, you don't need to fertilize. And so you get very productive for, you know, uh, all kinds of uh, winter vegetables. And so, you know, the rest of the country, you know, or, or third or developing countries, they really rely on inputs for uh, their agricultural output. And you raise the input and, you know, it's one thing for a farmer here in the U.S., but it's different for a guy in India or Bangladesh, right? And so, yes, I expect higher food prices uh, for various reasons. Um, and with, you know, fuel equals food. I mean, if you raise the price of fuel, uh, you have to mine phosphate rock and potash, right? So that requires diesel. To transport it requires diesel. To distribute it causes diesel. To apply it, diesel. So the price, you know, these, these things are not th thought about. They're just like, well, you know, uh, they'll just bring another mine on and it will be a problem and all these problems will go away. So I think as we've, you know, because of these, uh, we've interrupted uh, deliberately the supply chains like we have, uh, that comes into play. So that kind of feeds into the second question here, you know, how to play the ag market asymmetrically. Well, you know, that's what I addressed in the last uh, November issue of AIA, uh, Actionable Intelligence. I didn't really have an asymmetrical way to play it. You know, your best way really is buy yourself a basket of fertilizer stocks. That's probably your best way. Um, as far as junior juniors that we can go five to 10, there's not that many around. There are a few, I'm looking at them. Uh, but I haven't, you know, I've invested in, you know, um, throughout my career, farm technology, you know, the equipment makers, you can look at that, you can, but these things are not things are going to go 10 bagger, right? So I think it's, you know, creating your own little ETF of fertilizer producers probably uh, would, uh, you know, do well, you do well there. There used to be a fertilizer ETF, it was called Soil. And they actually got rid of it in August of 2020 because there wasn't that much interest. You know, that's another, that was an indicator of a bottom, by the way, you know, when they get rid of the ETF because uh, there's no interest, that's uh, usually a, an indicator that the industry is bombed out and um, uh, could be an opportunity. Conversely, when an industry explodes to the upside, uh, a lot of times they'll bring ETFs on at the top of the market. So something to think about. So another input from a reader, uh, he told me of the conversation he had had with a, or a uh, subscriber with uh, somebody that works in the service, oil services industry in Canada and some of the issues that uh, they're seeing there uh, as far as turning, you know, oil services drilling and fracking and completion back on. And so these are, you know, some, some comments. You know, I tell this side, getting the hands back on the rigs. So, of course, here we go again. Labor is a huge issue. You have the younger guys who come in and quit on the first day or halfway through acceptance testing. 
Workers during the last layoff, he estimates that 50% of them will not return. Some of them have retired working at places like Home Depot. Others have moved on to install wind and other trades. He also mentioned that the people remaining are older and worried that they won't be able to pass on their knowledge. Yeah, I'm seeing the same thing in the, the industry I work in, construction. A lot of young guys, we have a lot of turnover. People don't have the same work ethic. They don't have the same ability to uh, absorb the material, it seems. And so uh, that's a problem. People don't like to travel either. You know, they don't like to be away from home living in a Econo Lodge or a man camp. If oil was trading at $150 a barrel and the companies just threw money at people to entice them to come back, how long would it take to get things back to the way they used to be? He said at least one year, probably closer to two to get things humming. You know, if you do throw enough money out there, you'll get people to come back. But then again, you know, you're running a business. You can't just afford to pay everybody, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or, you know, at some point it's not, you know, viable business. So there's checks and balances on that also. He also mentioned that a lot of the plants name drop Syncrude have been on a close to breakdown maintenance schedule for the last five years, and many of them are planning scheduled maintenance in the first half of next year. So that's another thing that happens, right? If you're in an industry that is uh, in distress, like uh, the oil industry was for the last few years, that's what you do, right? You don't go out and just go crazy. You just, you know, do what you need to do to keep the thing running uh, to cut costs. And so at some point you have to start investing, you start have to doing more in-depth turnarounds and shutdowns to keep the um, plant running. I mean, these big plants, like when I worked in the refinery or these power plants, we don't run things to failure. We do things like predictive maintenance. We have different tools we can use and data that we gather that we can actually predict when uh, a piece of equipment may fail. And then we can schedule it for uh, maintenance during the turnaround, like a anticipate a bearing failure or the various um, constituents of oil sampling that we do. We can see the metals in it. We can see uh, different constituents of the oil will tell us uh, what is happening with that machine or like a transformer. And that way we don't just, you know, you're not going to run a plant like that or a power plant to, to failure. You're just not gonna, that's just not how things are done uh, in real life. Uh, but if you're struggling or you're cash constrained, sometimes you may have to do that. So then you have to come back, spend more money and time once uh, the salad days return. So we saw this this week, uh, Kaz, Kaz Adam Prom signs term contracts with China. So this is a direct quote from the press release. During the expo, they had an expo, uh, exporters expo or importers expo, China and Kazakhstan. Kaz Adam Prom concluded two term contracts for the supply of natural uranium con concentrates one with China National Uranium Limited and a second with the State Nuclear Uranium Resources Development Company Limited. The quantities and specific contract terms cannot be disclosed due to confidentiality and commercial sensitivity. So was this 100 million pounds? Was it 10 million pounds? Was it 1 million pounds? We don't know. What was the price? We don't know. Does it have a floor price and escalators? We don't know. What we do know is that China is on the prowl for uranium resources to support their now announced 150 reactor build out over the next 14 years. Okay. And they're going to ensure that not only do they have enough uranium to start the reactors, but to run them because you're not going to make a half a trillion dollar investment and not have sufficient fuel supply. So, you know, do I have any inside information? No, but I have. A, I suspect that the Chinese don't sit around and wait for a crisis. 
They plan things out as best they can. And if you know you're going to build this many reactors, you're going to go, I mean, Kazakhstan's basically next door to Western China. So um, this is part of the whole Shanghai Cooperation Organization. This plays into it. Geopolitics plays into this. And I think this is very bullish longer term. Why? Because the, a lot of utilities in the West are just sitting on their hands. People are not, have not, um, they're starting to wake up, but they haven't fully arisen from their slumber as it regards the supply constraints that are coming down the pipeline vis-a-vis uh, -vis uranium. And so, you know, I wanted to put this out. Like I said, I don't have any information beyond what this is. You can speculate, but, uh, you know, uh, I would suggest to you that, uh, you know, China is probably going to be um, working with the uh, Kazakhs to, you know, make them a premier supplier and a reliable supplier for their uh, nuclear ambitions. So I want to throw this out there too, Meb Faber, uh, I like reading his um, stuff. He's got a lot of free stuff on his website. And so the tweet here is US CAPE ratio currently at 40. What's the CAPE? The cyclically adjusted PE ratio that was, um, uh, this is a tool to measure valuation relative uh, to uh, cycles, economic cycles. And so if you study this, and I've talked about this before, um, the higher that the CAPE goes, the lower your forward returns are. That's what we've seen from the historical information. So historical averages, five and 10 year real returns, year end when the CAPE is 40, above 40 across all countries equals negative. So what we're saying here is, is when you have, if, if your starting point, if you're out buying stocks today, like the S&P 500, um, at the current CAPE, you can expect your five and 10 year returns going forward to be negative. Now I'm not talking like 20%, there's something like one or 2%. And how do you get there? Well, you'll have an up year of 10 or 15%, and then you'll have like a down year of 25%. So what typically happens when you have these extended capes is, um, you usually have, like I said, these, these small losses or small gains each year, and then you have a big drawdown somewhere in that five or 10 year period, you know, 30, 40% drawdown. And that's what really cements in the negative uh, five or 10 year return. And so what I thought was interesting is what he said here. This is why I like listening to this guy. A lot of people will write back to me and say, well, his ETFs suck. They don't return good. That's irrelevant. This information that they gathered is factual information. And so pay attention to this statement. I can't find a single instance in history where a country stock market ended the year at above a 40 cape and met historical 10-year real returns of 6%. So in the history of all the countries, when their cape is above 40, the 10-year returns are not even 6% a year. And we showed a poll of investors, I think maybe a month or two ago, where the average investor is expecting 17% year per per year returns. So the expectations are not matching with the facts. And so, yes, the market is up significantly this year, um, but we are overextended. And I've been saying this, you know, the overall general market is in a bubble. We know that. And now we have, you know, inflation coming in hot. We have the taper beginning. So the liquidity spigot is 
at least being talked about and beginning to be closed. Okay, that has what has fueled these bubbles. Okay, I'm not saying there's going to be a crash. I don't know when the what the market's going to do on a go forward basis. There's no way to know that. It's unknowable. But we can look at these historical precedents and take some uh, view based on them. That doesn't mean they're 100% correct. But it does mean that ignoring this is to your financial peril. Now, people will, will write in the comments, and I'll go ahead and answer the question now. What does that mean for the stocks that we're invested in? Well, uranium stocks are stocks. Oil stocks are stocks. Copper stocks are stocks. If the stock market goes down 50%, most stocks, 95% of the stocks will go down, not necessarily 50%. Mostly the overvalued stocks will go down the most. And the quickest to recover will be the more value oriented stocks. But do not be under the illusion that you will be able to hide out in these other stocks. What you should understand is that if we have a market dislocation, which I cannot predict and you cannot predict, that you, you will have uh, your stocks go down and the stocks in the portfolio and the actionable intelligence alert will go down. So they'll, like I said, though, once they turn the liquidity spigot back on, they'll be the quickest to return or, or recover. But, you know, this is why you have to, you know, be an active portfolio manager or your alternative is just to put 280, have 286 or, you know, whatever, removed from your paycheck every week and put into an S&P fund for the next 30 years and ignore it and ignore the ups and downs. You know, we talked about that Charlie Munger quote. If you're not able to withstand a 50% decline in your stocks, then this is not the place for you. That's paraphrasing. You can't, you have to get your mind set around that. It doesn't mean you just sit there when it's an obvious market dislocation and ride it all the way down. Okay. You know, People write me all the time and say, what should I do? Some of the stocks in the portfolio are up six, 700%. Well, it just depends on your individual circumstances. You know, if somebody writes to me and says, well, one person wrote to me and said, I can now pay off my house and I now have financial security for my family. What should I do? Well, I mean, in those circumstances, if that's your goal, you should probably sell down sufficiently to pay your house off and have that peace of mind. You, you, you've met your goal. What's the point? To squeeze out the last 20, 30, 40% move? To risk, to put your financial well-being and your you know, goal of paying off your house at risk? If that was your goal of why you were, why you were investing or speculating, you've reached your goal. Sell it down to do, to do that, and now you have the peace of mind. You know, if you're laying awake at night, you know, oh, what should I do? I don't know what to do. I can't sleep. I'm drinking Pepto-Bismo and eating Tums. You own too much, too much, too much stock, and the wrong, the wrong things. You should sell it down. That's my advice. I mean, everybody's different, um, you know. And the hardest thing to do is sell. It's e it's not easy, but it's relatively more easy to find stocks to buy than it is to tell people when to sell. And so, what I suggest you do, uh, and what I've suggested many times before, and I'm going to reiterate this again for the thousandth time. Make an investment plan. Write it down what you're trying to do. Take, sit down in a quiet room. I'm not saying write a 40-page term paper, but you know, write down what you're trying to achieve, what your risk tolerance is. Be honest with yourself. You know, what what you know, I'm going to try to achieve this. Um, because you have to get these emotional you, and refer back to it, these emotional 
uh, and psychological things are the biggest constraints to being successful in investing. FOMO, fear of missing out, greed, fear, fear of missing out on losses, fear of, or fear of missing out on gains, fear of losses, fear of failure, fear of what, you know, people are going to say. I mean, all these things, you have to take all this into account and you have to write it down and you have to work on it. This takes work. You have to work on your emotional state of mind. You have to work on your plan when you're going to sell. You know, it's not normal to have stocks go up two or 300% in 18 months. We've had some of those returns. You know, I just told you that going on a go forward basis, you can expect to have 6% or less returns a year or probably negative returns in the general stock market. And yet people are asking me, oh, do you think things are going to go higher? I mean, I have no idea. The future is completely unknowable. I just go by his historical precedent. So I'm not getting on you guys. I just get a little bit aggravated because, you know, people want me to tell them what to do and I cannot do that. I don't know you enough. I, and even if I did know you, I, I can't tell you what to do. Everything, this is an individual journey for each of us. I can give advice. I can give um, the benefit of my experience, what has worked for me. Uh, but, you know, that's why I read a lot of famous investors also. But a lot of things that they do don't apply to me either because I'm different than I'm different than Warren Buffett or Paul Tudor Jones. I can take different things that are, you know, general workable things, but I don't uh, have the same temperament or the same risk tolerance or whatever. So uh, I wanted to spend some time on that because we do have some really great gains. People are really doing well in a lot of these stocks and companies. There's not enough conversation about this. And when something's up four or five hundred percent or even a hundred percent, that's you know, in a relatively short period of time, that's an anomaly. That's not normal, guys. And so locking that in is not, you know, and, and, and what happens is get ready for it. You sell after you have these huge gains and guess what? It goes up after that. And then you're, you cannot think like that. You cannot, I mean, I told the story how I sold most of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when it ran up, it was it 2017, 18, whenever it ran up for that bubble to 20,000 originally. I sold most of my Bitcoin between 3,500 and 4,000 because I had bought it, you know, at a hundred, two hundred dollars. I was up, you know, 10, 15 times, you know, then I subsequently watched it go <clears throat> parabolic to 20,000. I, I did, you know, I was like, well, it, it happens, you know, I mean, but you can't kick yourself because the, the returns were, they weren't necessarily life-changing, but for that year, I made my year for sure. So think long-term, um, think like a, you know, a long-term baseball player, like, you know, guy with a 20 year career, you know, um, Rod Carew, Pete Rose, these guys hitting your singles and doubles, get you in the hall of fame. You don't have to just swing for the fences on everything. Uh, be a Dave Kingman three outcome, uh, player, you know, it's either a home run strikeout or, you know, uh, a walk. Or, or a fly out. So you don't, you don't need to think like that. Think like the guy that's hitting singles and doubles. And if you strike out or you miss a pitch, then you just wait for the next pitch. Okay. So constantly opportunities are coming down the, coming down the pipe. So don't, don't, uh, don't fret. I wanted to point this out because I think it's kind of funny. We know everybody's bagging on Russia all the time, but uh, you know, Russia is basically a resource-based economy, not all the way it's getting more technologically advanced obviously you can see the performance of their military weaponry in syria and other theaters uh, it's pretty good 
but you know the huge um, agricultural output, um, huge mining output, and various minerals, obviously oil and gas. And so, yeah, I mean, I was talking about buying Russia a couple of years ago when it had a Cape P, a Cape ratio of five. Five was the it was one of the cheapest stocks in the, or countries in the world. So I was recommending buying it and, you know, here we are. It's been performing quite nicely since then. So that's another thing I do. I, I look at the PE ratios, the CAPE ratios of various countries and then just buy the ETFs. That's worked out fairly well for us. If you've been watching my videos for the last couple of years, I've done the same thing in Egypt and Pakistan. You know, we've clipped, you know, 50, 40, 50% returns in a year buying countries when they are, you know, completely bombed out. You know, Cyprus was another example a few years ago when they had the uh, banking crisis. You know, the places, these places go through cycles too, political cycles. Um, you know, the human nature is people get ticked off. So they put in uh, to power people and people maybe wreck the economy or cause dislocations in the economy. The people get pissed off, uh, you know, and vote in a, a new bunch of people that vow to change it. And then, like I said, it's just another example of something going from terrible to less terrible. And you can, you know, make a very nice living investing just in ETFs of countries that are going from terrible to less terrible. And so, you know, Russia is a perfect example of that. And you can see, you know, I didn't take the chart back you know, a couple of years, but for a while, Russia was severely underperforming the US. Now it's outperforming. So things are cyclical. That's why you have to, you know, pay attention. You have to use different tools. And this is what leads to opportunity. And I just wanted to point this out. I suspect that uh, as long as this commodity, this decade, I would suggest to you that Russian stocks will probably outperform US stocks over this decade, over a 10 year period. Now, month to month, Year to year, who knows? But when you tally it all up at the end, if we're going to be a decade of inflation and resource uh, nationalization and resource, uh, you know, price rises, I would suggest to you that Russia is better positioned than the U.S. for that. So this is uh, interesting. This uh, get the got this off Frank Talk, um, U.S. Global Investors. Um, they do a weekly. Uh, SWOT analysis, and I pulled this chart off there. And so what you see here is, you know, we had this, uh, here's this uh, inflation, we had this big spike this week, the announcement 6.2% of the official CPI. I mean, this is getting back, this is getting into 1970s territory now. Um, you can see right before we had the last uh, crash, we were up at this, up at this area with inflation uh, before the um, housing bubble blew up. That's when oil prices were $150 a barrel, or $140. Uh, but what I wanted to point out is there's a guy named John Williams. He has a site called Shadow Stats. And what he does is he calculates the CPI based on the way they calculated it like back in the 70s before they made all the adjustments to, you know, the government, the government's crooked, right? It's, it's full of humans, it's full of politicians, it's full of people trying to advance their interests. And so... What they, you have to understand is when you have these big CPI moves, this causes problems for the government because they have to do cost of living increases for like social security, veterans benefits, retirements, that kind of thing, federal employee pensions. And so they are self-interested and motivated. Remember, 
We've talked about this before. Self-interest, okay? Motivation, okay? Incentives, good and bad. That's what motivates human beings. And so they're incentivized to minimize these CPI increases because, first of all, it shows the inherent inflation of the monetary system. Secondly, they for it forces the government to have all these COLA adjustments, which they can't afford, okay? And so that's why they have, are incentivized to minimize. It's just bad publicity, right? They don't want to have inflation or in prices, or, uh, price rises, because the population gets ticked off as they are now. And so what John Williams did is he calculates, that's why it's called shadow stats. He calculates the CPI before, based on the way that was calculated before they put all these fake adjustments in there to, to deliberately lower it. And what he's showing is not a 6.2%, but 14%. And this makes sense, right? Because you see these anecdotal articles. I saw an article in the, I don't know, it was the New York Times, one of the papers this week um, my, during my readings, there was a pizza parlor guy in Staten Island. And he was, he has over 200 items that he buys, ingredients, different things. And every single one of them, every single one of the ingredients for his pizzas, for his business is up double digits. He was giving some examples, garlic prices up 400%. I mean, just across the board, double digit at least. And so the government's talking about 6.2%. It's a lot higher. You can see it when you go to the grocery store. I mean, I went there yesterday. I'm just by myself living at my house uh, off for a week. And I went over and I loaded up, you know, for the week. Uh, and, you know, I don't clip coupons or anything. I buy what I want. But it was, you know, something that would probably cost me normally 100 bucks was $180. Okay. And uh, you notice, it. I noticed the prices. But, you know, fortunately, I'm blessed. I, I can pay. But I know that there's a lot of people on the margin that can't afford this. This is why people are so upset. And imagine we've talked about this before. We talked about it earlier in the in the in the video. Food prices are going to lead to problems. You have the largest. We talked about it last week. The UN tracks this. Their food price index is at levels which, in the past, have triggered um, political crisis around the world, specifically in developing countries. This is where the, a large part of the risk is because these people are spending a large portion of their income just on food. And if you don't have food, you are up a creek. That goes without saying. Um, three days without a meal and you're gonna have revolutions. That's just how it is. So we think inflation's understated. Um, and I think that realization setting in, obviously when you take the CPI, uh, even the official and juxtapose it with current interest rates, you start pushing Real interest rates, substantially negative. You're in territory in real interest rates that are extremely negative like they were in the 70s. And why do I mention that? Because gold is waking up. Um, I don't know if this is a GDXJ. This is the um, Gold Juniors ETF. You know, we've seen right out of nowhere it came, right? Uh, the gold price has kind of got out of its band. It was... 1760, 1770, 1780, it was just stuck in that range for a while. And now we've seen a move up to like 1850. And so obviously the gold stocks are responding to that. So uh, this is a longer term chart that goes back to 2017. This is a weekly chart. This has been in a bull market. Uh, you saw the initial blast off after, the, um, after all the liquidity started. That's when we saw this 50 week 
50-week line crossed the 200-week line. The 200-week moving average is in, a, is in a bullish ascending ascendance. You have the 50-day above that. But what you saw is this big spike. It got overbought, and then it's worked off this overbought condition, went right down to the 200-week average, and has bounced off. So this is what you want to see. This is really technically correct. Now, am I suggesting we're going to have a run in gold stocks? I don't know. Uh, we have gold stocks in the portfolio. They've been getting ground down. You know, the, but you know, second to a uranium bull market, a gold market, a gold bull market is very exciting. So I, I don't think we ever got out of the bar, gold bull market. We just had it. We just had a interim peak here. We worked off this overbought, and now we seem to have bounced. So if these gold prices hold or move higher, which some people are saying, you know is going to happen. You know, you you got to lows in sediment. Nobody was talking about gold or gold stocks. And that's where a lot of the focus should be. I, I was buying gold stocks over the last month or two. Okay. I buy things, you know, people say, well, what should I be buying in the portfolio, John? And they're like, you know, should we keep, you know, is uranium a good buy here? Is oil? Why, why are you buying the things that are in the news? Yes, there's still good buys in the, in the relative um, near term, probably, but they could be overbought. You need to, when you're cycling new capital into your portfolio, you need to be buying the things that are, that where the sediment is, has, is negative or low and that has, you know, not performed that well, okay? If you still have a long-term bullish picture, okay? That's where the opportunity is, okay? We, we, we had the view that we were still in a gold bull market. I still think gold's going tremendously higher over this decade. I mean, Goring and Rosenzweig, who... Um, have done a lot of work on this. Think gold's going to ten thousand dollars an ounce this decade. I don't know. Three thousand thirty five hundred seems reasonable over the next you know eighteen months to me. Especially if this monetary uh, situation continues the way it is with the inflation. You know, I'm not going to get into too much into the macro. Um, suffice to say, I don't believe that the Federal Reserve and the central banks, at least in the West, can afford to have rates go up or stop. This, the, the creation of money uh, that they're doing. And, you know, it's with the debts we have, it's just, that's a, that's a four-hour conversation. Go to George Gammon's YouTube channel. He talks about it all the time. He's more versed in it than I am. So, so anyways, um, the point being that, you know, on a weekly chart, your 200-day or 200-week is an ascendancy that's bullish. We came down, bounced right off it, basically. That's what you want to see. If we would have broken through this, if we would have saw this 50-week continue lower and then puncture the 200-week, that would have been negative. But, you know, this overbought condition, and this has happened before, you know, several commentators, if you look at prior moves in gold, this is what happens. You have this big spike, a lot of activity in it. Sediment gets way overbought. I mean, it gets to record high sediment levels, and then you have a near-term peak, and then it takes a long time, a year, 18 months, two years to work off that uh, overbought sediment and then get down into very low levels where nobody cares about it and nobody talks about it, and that's what's happened. So something to take into consideration uh, if you're looking to put new money at work to work, but uh, I think, uh, you know, I feel positive. Take a look at um, Caledonia Resources. That's another public company that I've talked about. Uh, it's a gold producer in Zimbabwe, very profitable. Blanket Mine is the name of the mine. Um, do some research on it. I'm not recommending you buy it. I'm just saying take a look at it. It's the public vehicle I like to talk about gold. They just picked up some more properties there. 
that's still probably the most underinvested, underexplored gold producing region in the world. Okay. And uh, things are slow, slowly but surely changing there. Uh, you have to respect the management that for the last 10 or 15 years was able to profitably mine gold, pay dividends in the economic conditions that, uh, that they encountered in Zimbabwe. So uh, I think it's paying a pretty decent dividend. And uh, it looks, the chart is similar to this chart. It seems to be bouncing. So something to, uh, if you're interested, take a look at it. Take a look at the um, um, various uh, ETFs like this, if you're interested. Uh, be aware though, that investing in the gold junior space is fraught with a lot of pitfalls. I will just remind you of that. So here we talked about fertilizer prices, picked up this chart. This is from last week. This is the urea prices in New Orleans at the Gulf Coast spot price. You're um, at highs we haven't seen since 2008. Um, and, uh, you know, this is what we're talking about, right? This is the whole situation around natural gas and people shutting down production in Europe because of high gas prices. And these are world, these are worldwide markets, right? They're not just, uh, there are some regional um, specific pricing, but you know, if um, you shut down production of these things, then prices, people are gonna go scrounging around other places looking for supply. And so this is a interesting thing to point out. Now, these parabolic moves typically end badly as you see, but uh, there's, I don't, we're in a different situation now. These were more because of, you know, small specific uh, situations uh, specific to the fertilizer market. This is more specific to the overall energy markets, the lockdowns, the pandemic response and the uh, ripple effects from that. So we don't know what this entails. We don't know how far when this thing pulls back where it settles at, okay? We don't really know. So uh, it's just something to keep, keep in mind. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Um, kind of jumped around a little bit. It was kind of a Lollapalooza uh, week of a lot of different information. Um, I still feel pretty confident about uh, what I'm seeing in the energy markets. We're kind of in that shoulder season. Uh, we're looking to see what happens over the next two weeks with the weather. If in fact, these uh, Atlantic oscillations, specific oscillation, the La Nina, if we start seeing these incursions of the jet stream pushing that cold Arctic air. One of the things I did notice there were record record low temperatures in the North Pole and in Antarctica. So if you get these jet streams pushing where they uh, get pushed down into, into the um, North America and Europe, you're gonna have some extremely cold weather pushing down. So that's what we're looking for. You're looking at the forward forecast for a lot of the gas, natural gas consuming regions of, of North America. Uh, so we expect to see that. We suspect that the overall winter is going to be colder than normal and uh so we're we're maintaining our bullish stance on energy so um we'll see all right guys that's it for this week we appreciate the support uh we appreciate the comments and the um interaction and uh have a good week we'll talk to you next next time